Hey, it's John Hyatt, and you're listening to WMNF Tampa. Here comes the sun, doo-doo-doo. here comes the sun, I say it's all right. Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Living Show here on WMNF Tampa 88.5, where every Monday at 11 we bring you a conversation with local experts on sustainable issues. Your hosts today are myself, Kenny Coogan, and the wonderful Annie Ellis. Oh, hello, wonderful Kenny Coogan. <laughs> And we're also joined, the entire studio is empty, except for Mr. Bill Grace, who is working the boards, and Greg, who is answering your call. Thank so, goodness Thank you yes, to the dedicated you. volunteers of WMNF. That's right. We could not never do it without you. So, any uh, updates this week from you, Annie? Uh, well, not really. I mean, I, uh, I've been painting a bee box for a friend. Uh, and I'm going to go to I'm going to go to a cool thing next Saturday. Josh Jameson with Cody Co Farm. Um, he uh, is uh, doing farm tours uh, for you know you can go to the go and and they'll tour the uh, the farm and the nursery. And he's really good at all the the most edible uh, things that you can do that works in our area. So I'm excited about that. What? It's um, kind of funny. I've taken to friend for their birthday. <laughs> like, that's not really special to a lot of people, but, <laughs> you know, you have the right friends. <laughs> um, so I visited Josh Jameson a year or so ago. Oh, okay. But I've been there. Yeah. What's the farm called? Cody Cove Farm. It's a, and the reason why is there's a, uh, I think the, the area is uh, Cody uh, is the area. Gotcha. So it wasn't based on anyone's name. So, um, so what I'm, else you been doing? <laughs> we usually chat about something. I know. You didn't do anything cool this weekend. Uh, I went to the Lakeland Farmers Market. Uh-huh. I was a vendor, but there was five blocks of vendors because they oh. were they're off in August. So it was like the grand opening of the season. Oh wow! And it was wonderful. Very busy. And I'm reading this book from. Uh, a New York Times bestseller. It is called Queer Ducks. Okay. And Other Animals. <laughs> and it's teenager friendly, but it's about basically sexuality in the animal world. I've and- seen that in the animal world. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's interesting because people think it's, you know, not real or whatever. Some it, mean, it, some people. Most, but- some people. The argument used to be was that nurture being gay is, is unnatural. Nurture nature, yeah. And this book is very interesting because it says that a lot of scientists went to like their deathbed knowing that like sheep and insects and bugs and cattle and moose it were... All have a little friend? Yes, but they wouldn't put it in the report. Because they would be ostracized? Yes, yes. or... They didn't want people to think of the majestic sheep oh. being <laughs> being gay or bisexual. So, wearing pink socks. So, so then when they retired, <laughs> that's so funny. They put it in their memoir. Oh, that's probably a like, slur. I just did. Oh, like I already knew this. But uh, yes, it's very interesting. That is interesting. And, um, I've totally seen that before. You know, animals that bond with their uh, like two males or mm-hmm. two females or whatever. Mostly it's the males, I think, more than the females. But it's probably because they can't, there's not more females around or you think that it's just their preference. It's their preference because well, I'm halfway through the book and literally 30 minutes ago, I got to the cow chapter. Oh, really? <laughs> and today's 
<laughs> topic is about cows, but we're not talking about that. Oh, but, I see where you're going with but, that. Chick, Kenny is so clever. <laughs> he does all these things and go, you don't know this, y'all, but he goes all around about and all around about, <laughs> and then he brings it down to one little piece of that subject, and that is our intro for our guest. And I just love that about you, Kenny. It's wonderful. So they said that uh, <laughs> there's two million... Um, Jose can correct me in a minute, but yeah. they said that there's about 2 million bulls in the U.S., and pretty much all the beef cows and the dairy cows are impregnated using artificial insemination, mm-hmm. and the way that they collect the semen from the bulls is by showing them another bull. What? Yes. And that they, is so interesting. They, so it gets them jacked up. Yeah, and they've been doing it for... You know, hundreds oh, of years. So this like really uh, masculine cowboy, yeah. you know, rancher lifestyle. And they've known how to wow. get the collection this whole time. I wonder, though, if that has something to do with showing his prowess over the other bull, too. Well, you well, know what I mean? But that's interesting. If you that's read re- the chapter, then they say they've done experiments where they release the bulls into mixed sex flock. And they go not flocks, herds. There's huh. boys and girls. And they said, yes, several of them do find a female, but others will stay with a male. That's companion. very, very interesting. I'm, I don't doubt it for one second. Yeah. No, it's good that they're bringing it forward. Yes. So today we are talking with <laughs> back to the <laughs> back to the really smooth slide. Yeah, Dr. <laughs> Jose Dubé, uh, professor of forages and grassland sciences at the University of Florida. We're talking about developing a sustainable livestock production system. And what I'm really excited about is that I. I'll speak for myself. I don't know a lot about this subject, so I'm excited to learn. Well, Kenny's a vegetarian, and I barely eat meat. I barely eat meat. And usually if I have any that I've eaten, it's because I know the person that raised the animal, uh, and I know that they had a wonderful lifestyle till that last day. So... But it less and less, you know, because I just... Well, we're going to find out. Yeah, we are. And, and I'm excited because he's going to talk to us about natural feeding. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. So we want to... Uh, we're going to talk about cows, carbon, and climate. And we're going to talk about how to balance a people, profit, and plan. But first, Annie, both of us, every time we speak, it's like... Pow. I know, I'm listening to that. I don't have the shield for my... Uh, ah, that's what we... Yeah, need. and I don't know where it is, so... Sorry. So, Annie's going to introduce Dr. Jose Dubai. Dubai, Dubois. We'll find out in a second. I'm going to pronounce it in a French way. <laughs> we're talking, this is Annie, and uh, we're talking to Jose Dubois, a professor of forages and grassland sciences at the University of Florida. We're talking about developing a sustainable livestock production uh, system. And so stay tuned to talk about cows, carbon, and climate and how we promote a balance. Oh, you already did that. Sorry. Uh, So Jose is uh, internationally recognized as an authority on ecosystem services in grasslands, silvopasture systems, I'm interested in that, and use of cactus as fodder. In his career, Jose and his team have produced 660 publications, including 251 peer-reviewed articles and chaired 36 graduate students. Wow, you've done a lot, Jose. Welcome to the program. We are so happy to have you online. Thank you so much, Anne and, and Kenny. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here on your, on your show. We are really excited. The reason why we've had so many UF IFAS extension professors and experts is because a couple months ago, 
I started looking up uh, professors and experts, and you were the very first person to come up. So you were the first person we booked, and then I basically booked all the other people around you because I, uh, you know, like Annie said, I am a vegetarian, but only 5 to 10% of Americans are vegetarian, so that means a lot of people are eating uh, beef and animals, and right. I really like all of the research and stuff you've been doing. Yeah, it's amazing uh, all the, you know, how many people eat meat three times a day. I'm always surprised. But, but nonetheless, that's what we're talking about. So uh, can you tell us about what a sustainable livestock system is, Jose? Sure, yeah. Um, well, uh, the cows have been in the, the headlines uh, for quite some time as being blamed for, you know, the climate change and all that stuff. But the good news is that you can uh, develop uh, sustainable livestock systems. And, and that means we're able to, to curb uh, those emissions because cows, they do emit some methane uh, to the atmosphere. Uh, but it's possible to reduce uh, some of the off-farm off inputs, such as uh, nitrogen fertilizer, uh, and uh, fossil fuel and machinery. Uh, and as, as you cut down uh, those inputs and also you promote some um, management practices that would increase carbon sequestration uh, in the ground, that could uh, offset uh, the emissions from, from the livestock systems. What do so you that's, mean, that's one of the goals. What do you mean uh, increased carbon sequestration? Uh, I think that's how you said it. Sequestration, sequestration, sequestration. Yeah. sequestration. Um, uh, but was to, to sequester. So, how, what do you mean to increase that uh, sequestering way of the carbon? Uh, I'm, I'm interested in what that means. Sure. Uh, yeah, grasslands. They are they are able to uh, store uh, soil organic carbon, uh, and, and that is that is a way to you know to put back you know this that carbon from the air and put uh, below ground uh, in in forms that are um, they stay there for a long long time without going back to the air so uh, that is a way to offset some of the emissions of the systems so as, as you increase you know that storage of carbon below ground you're also uh, reducing the problem uh, in terms of climate change. So so what you're saying is having the cows uh, in fields uh, and then rotating the fields is maybe the better way to go instead of having them in lots? Is that what I'm trying to understand? Yes. Uh, in, uh, and here in Florida, we are pretty much a, a cow-calf system. Particularly in the U.S., uh, what happens is that we have cow-calf systems, which is pretty much just based on, on grasslands and grazing, the animals stay in the field the whole time. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what you have here in Florida. And then the, the actual uh, system here, as, as the animals are grow, they, they, are, uh, you know, they, they, grow, they go to a feedlot somewhere uh, in the Midwest. So typically here in Florida, we just have uh, grazing animals. In most, I mean, with a, a few exceptions, there are you know, uh, a few feedlots here in Florida as well, but not many. In the majority of the case, the animals are shipped uh, to the Midwest uh, somewhere to, for a feedlot. Oh, that's interesting. So they don't have them finished here. They move them somewhere else and likely in a feedlot to finish Right. Them. For the majority of the cows here, yes. So the, the dairy cows is a little dif different. Well, there are some grazing dairies, but... Uh, uh, many of them are, are also confined in dairies uh, here in Florida. So uh, I, I, I 
um, heard that uh, that we are the leaders in uh, growing calves to be shipped off to other places mm-hmm. as well. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what you're saying. The cow, we're the cow calf operation. Yeah, so the calf. Oh, okay. So both of them got yeah. it. Um, so okay. So do uh, does Florida raise a lot of cows compared to the other states? Yeah, we are not the largest one. Uh, you know, there are Texas, Oklahoma, other states, but Florida ranks well, maybe it's uh, 14th, the okay. least. Uh, and we have maybe 900,000 um, cows, beef cows, and maybe 100,000 dairy cows here in Florida. And that's an important uh, point because, uh, you know, you know what was the Florida uh, human population back in 1950? Yes. It was uh, 2.8 million people. Uh, and today we have uh, 21 million people in Florida. Mm. That's amazing. Back in the days, we had the same number of cows that we have today. So we had, <laughs> um, you know, 900,000 cow, cows, maybe a little less. Mm-hmm. And today you have about the same number. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we just don't have uh, enough area for all the things to be sequestered. So then it combines, I would imagine, because we have so much cement everywhere. There's no place for storage. I mean, I don't imagine it would be isolated. I, I can't imagine that it would be. But uh, Right, then. Another, another important point in the uh, sustainable system, for example, nitrogen fertilizer. Uh, I'm not sure if you are aware, but uh, to make uh, nitrogen f- uh, fertilizer, we need to burn fossil fuel. And that has a, a high you know, carbon footprint to do the, the fertilizer. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you're trying to do in our sustainable systems is try to introduce forage legumes because they are able to, um, to fix, to grab nitrogen from the air and put into the system. Uh, in that way, we avoid or reduce the use of nitrogen fertilizer while keeping the system productive, which is important. Mm-hmm. So we, we've been able to do that uh, by introducing um, forage legumes in the summer and in the cool season uh, here in Florida. That's wonderful. Are uh, people responding to that? I, mean, I would think it's like a lot of the good old boy system, you know, like my great granddaddy didn't do that. You know, my granddaddy didn't do My daddy didn't do that. So I'm going to do what they did. So they didn't plant legumes and, and think about cactus and so on for foraging uh, or to actually replenish the soil. Are they being, are people being receptive to that idea? Because I think it's a wonderful idea. Yeah, in terms of introducing forage legumes, uh, in the in the cool season, it's very common to oversee uh, the, the, the pastures with uh, clovers. I mean, it's very common, at least mainly here in central North Florida, and some 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 of some areas in in, um, in South Florida as well. Uh, and uh, perennial peanut is a legume that you are using in the summer, mm-hmm. so it's becoming more and more common people using that, uh, especially this year where uh, the the fertilizer price they skyrocketed. You know, it was um, very expensive, so everybody was trying to find a solution. Uh, and we've been uh, with some uh, experiments on the ground for eight years at least, proving the concept that we can cut back 85% of the nitrogen fertilizer and still keep the system productive. That's that wonderful. also Go ahead. Uh, cuts back on the carbon footprint of, of the system. And, you know, perennial peanut flowers are delicious. <laughs> I have them growing in my yard. I but, just but thrilled. Jose, the cows are enjoying the perennial peanut as right. well. Oh, they love it because I mean it's uh we have a little machine here in my lab that tells you know if you collect some cow dung, uh, we can tell how much carbon came from the perennial oh. peanut and how much carbon came from the grass. Uh, and actually, in the summer, you know, seventy percent came comes from the peanut because it's just so good and nutritive. You know, 
very digestible, very good protein, so they love it. And it's interesting, too, because if they're in the field and their manure is going to be feeding the peanut, I mean, it's like a really perfect little circle if people would get on board with that. That's, yeah. that's fantastic. That's, that's exactly right. You know, they, uh, you know, the cows eat uh, the forage, and 80 to 90% of whatever they ate goes back to the pasture, yeah. you know, as dung and urine. And that also transferred the nitrogen to the grass as well, which is growing along the, the legumes in the system. Jose, are you familiar with Joel Salatin? I'm not. Okay, so I think he is doing what you're doing, but he's in the Carolinas. He says that on average, plants allocate 76% of the carbon stocks in the shoots and only 24% to the roots. So he says that annuals like grasses are very good at sequestering carbon because when you have a large herbivore like a cow, it is, you know, it's mowing the grass rather than ripping it out from the roots like some other herbivores. And then by naturally mowing it, when it regrows, it keeps uh, collecting the carbon. Well, and also, as we know as gardeners, when you pinch something, you get a double, triple, third, you know, fourth sprout on top. So there's that. That's right. So, uh, yeah, and, and really the amount that uh, allocates so below ground, it really depends on the, the system and the management. Yes, yeah. typically grass around 50% is, is under, you know, below ground and 50% above as a rule of thumb, but it, it does vary a little bit. Um, but uh, so besides uh, reducing or cutting back the nitrogen fertilizer, we also try to graze as much as we can along this, the ear. You know, try to cut back on feeding hay or... Uh, or grains and things like that, because we think it's cheaper for the producer and also more sustainable to the environment. You're, and if, if you graze as much as you can, as you know, instead of you know putting fossil fuel machines to cut and bay when feeding, we are letting the cow to do it uh, by grazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are we're developing you know a systems that we can put you know things together, different forages, uh, so that we can. You know, it's possible here in Florida to graze 365 days of the year if you want. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you about silvopasture in just a minute, but uh, Joel Salatin, who I was talking about, he uh, he has a farm called Polyface Farms, and he's a writer for Mother Earth News. And he says that when people are growing uh, large herbivores like cows, the thing that we should be focusing on is moving, mob, and mowing. So you, sh- you should keep them in a tight mob because out in the wild... Like if you think about the wildebeest, they're in a tight mob because mm-hmm. there's a lion yeah. around the corner. Yeah. So when you have cows on a really big lot and they can eat whatever they want, they're only going to eat certain plants. But if you keep them in a smaller group, oh, like yeah. a mob, then that makes them eat everything. And if you move them every day, they're eating you know, all of those different grasses and then they're doing the natural uh, behavior of mowing. And you don't want to be feeding them things like seeds and grass or dead cows or chicken manure, yeah. which is what some people That's do. That's awful. Ugh. So, so, so Jose, is, can you explain what silvopasture is? Sure. Uh, silvopasture is when you put trees and, and grazing uh, animals in the same area. So typically you plant the, the trees a little bit apart and then... Uh, you can uh, graze in between the trees. Uh, so that's uh, good for the environment uh, because the trees are able to sequester carbon, again, to put more carbon below ground, uh, much more so than, than the grasses. Uh, 
and uh, and also the trees provide shade to the cows and and, and particular here in Florida that's very important. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so there are some areas of silvopasture uh, here. But my experience from silvopasture comes uh, back from Brazil. I'm originally from Brazil and I did some work there with silvopasture. Yeah, you always see the uh, big oak trees out there, and that's where the cows are. Mm-hmm. Right, and th- there are some examples here in Florida as well of silvopasture mm-hmm. systems, and some people are doing that. Nice. Are, are they in uh, like pine trees? Or? Yeah, typically pine trees here in Florida. Um, but, it, you know, like silver pasture, you, you need to have the animals and the trees in the same area. But uh, we could also potentially have a farm with uh, some timber and some cows, even if they are not in the same area. And the timbers could help also the, that farm to offset the carbon emissions uh, by sequestering more carbon. So that's one, mm-hmm. one approach. Do you think the reason why cows have the bad rap that they do now is because people associate them with methane or is there some other environmental uh, attribute that people are upset at cows for? At cows or the people that have the cows? I think, well, yeah, go ahead, Jose. Yeah, Yeah, I think this this, uh, reputation started back in early 2000. Before that, nobody really talked much about methane from cows. But in early 2000, people started talking about that uh, and uh, because they, the reason they start talking about that is uh, they saw a peak in the uh, methane in the atmosphere from biogenic source uh, during that time. Uh, but it, it really made no sense to blame the cows for that because, you know, the cow numbers, they are not increasing. They are about the same um, for a long time. And, uh, and, and later on, right, you know, recently there are some data showing uh, that actually... Um, the fracking um, from, from shale gas is the one to blame from that peak in methane during that time. But once you create a bad reputation, and, and they do uh, release methane, but they've been doing that forever. Even here, like 300 years ago, the, the population of bisons and, and, mm-hmm. and wild ruminants were, were huge. Uh, and today, I mean, we're just replaced, you know, some of those animals by cows. And actually the cow population is decreasing in the U.S. because it's becoming more efficient. So at the end of the story, I mean, yeah, they release methane, but it's not very different from what used to happen in the past. Yes. But there are, you know, fossil fuel and, and a lot of other things are, are really the ones to blame. Yeah, I'm so happy you mentioned bisons, but first I'll say that Bill, our producer, says that Ronald Reagan also gave the cows a bad rap for the methane. But I did some did? Res- research and... Um, in 1600, there was between 30 and 60 million bison. Wow. Then in the early uh, 1900s, we had slaughtered them down to 541 bison. Because they were trying to uh, starve out the Indians. Yeah, but also we were just killing them. Well, and, they were trying to starve and, out them. And um, they were selling like the pelts of a bison for like a dollar to three dollars. That's a lot then. Yeah. So right now, there's half a million bison in the U.S., and there's 30, well, according to my number, it says 30 million beef cows as of January 2022. So I think, I mean, I understand what you're saying, Jose, like the megafauna has switched from bison to domesticated cows. I'm not saying that's right, but I feel like the world, the globe can handle that amount because, uh, you know, we're just kind of swapping one megafauna for another. Right, so it's it really is not a, a, a new methane, uh, to be honest. And, and, and the methane also has a, a, a short life cycle in the air. So if you don't increase the cow numbers, uh, you know, at some point it becomes uh, that steady state. It's not going to increase. 
Yeah, so. I, I also work for uh, Sloth, Anteater, and Armadillo uh, group. <laughs> and they said that... Oh, my God. You just have the most wonderful interests. It's just great. So it's part of the International <laughs> Union for Conservation of Nature. And what I'm creating some uh, education stuff now. And 10,000 to 60,000 years ago in South America because you mentioned that you're from Brazil, there was giant ground sloths and giant uh, armadillos the size of Volkswagen beetles, beetle cars. Mm -hmm. And um, there was about 19 species of these megafauna in one location, which is way more than the megafauna of Africa today. You know, you think of a hippo, a rhino, an elephant. Right. Right, maybe a bison, or not a bison, but like a water buffalo. But in South America, there were so many uh, other megafauna. So Hmm. our large animals are changing. So, uh, Jose, you mentioned earlier about fossil fuels and how that's also affecting the world. So how do you reduce fossil fuel-intensive off-farm inputs? Right, that's a, a great question. And, and like I said, uh, the legumes uh, help on that because we can cut back on the nitrogen fertilizer. And uh, as I said, uh, we need to burn uh, natural gas to, to you know, uh, reduce uh, nitrogen in there to become a fertilizer. And that, that's a huge carbon footprint. Uh, but also, as, as we graze more, uh, as we put the cows to graze more, we are also reducing uh, the fossil fuel use in the farm, on farm, uh, and, and also the use of machinery, uh, you know, to, to feed them uh, hay or, or baleage and, and all those operations. So that's what we are trying to do. We are trying to use uh, the different forests that we have here in Florida uh, to, to bridge the different gaps and, able, and be able to, to graze uh, 365 days of the year. Okay. So we are doing that uh, here by increasing the diversity, the number of species uh, of forage that you use uh, uh, along the year. You're using bahia grass, perennial peanut, and different types of clovers, uh, limpo grass, and different forage that they grow differently at the different um, seasons of the year. And uh, you know, also doing some uh, management, for example, stockpiling forages uh, to use uh, to bridge the gap. So if you do that, we're really able to graze as much as we can. As, again, the, the cows will do the cycle there. They return most of the nutrients back to the system. So in just a minute, I want to ask you about more of those cover crops and especially feeding them cactus. I, but first, we want to reintroduce our guests. I want to ask you what the name of that one grass was, though, that I didn't recognize. It was the last one you said on the Oh, on the, limpo grass, maybe? Limpo? Yeah. L-A-M-P-O. Okay, thank you. Great. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> We want to remind listeners that this is the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5. Today's guest is Dr. Jose Duba. We are talking about developing a sustainable livestock production system. If you want to be part of the conversation and get uh, Greg to work, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and we will read it on air. So earlier you were talking about cover crops. Do the farmers have to plant the cover crops if the cows are in a tight mob, or do do different like pioneer pioneering species just pop up, or how does that work? Great question. Um, uh, so yes, uh, they, they they need to to plant the cover crops, uh, and, and and that's important, you know, to protect the soil against erosion, uh, reduce the uh, weed encroachment, and things like that. 
And there are different types of cover crops. Uh, you know, uh, it's typically very common to use rye and oats or triticale, but also some clovers. Uh, and I like to, to have a blend of clovers. Some of them, they grow early in the season. Some of them uh, grow later. And then it, as you mix them, you kind of stretch the grazing season, which is the, my whole goal here. Uh, but uh, on other aspect, I would like, we've been promoting a lot the integ integration of crop and livestock systems, uh, especially here in North Florida. We have a lot of row crop like cotton and peanuts, very common. We have 300,000 acres uh, of, of those crops here in Florida. And typically, as they harvest the, uh, the crops in October or so, uh, they stay until April without doing anything, not even planting the cover crops. So by integrating uh, a cattle uh, in that system, we've been showing with our data that you are able to even increase the falling row crop productivity and you've been able to reduce nitrate leaching because the cover crops, they stay there if the roots uh, uptake nutrients and that reduce nitrate leaching. We've, we have some research uh, here showing that. Uh, so that's, that's really important and that's something that you're also promoting. So um, I don't know if I heard you say this or if this just popped into my head. So, <laughs> so to clarify, uh, I, if we did cover crops in all the fields that are fallow, uh, that are like, you know, something that someone would grow one crop a year, uh, <clears throat> if we put the, the cover crop in there, could we let the, then the livestock, uh, forage that? It w and it seems to me that that would be a positive because then they would get the urine and the manure of your own cover crop, which I think is a better situation because you know how it grew and you knew what it got and all that sort of thing. Is that something that would work or is that something that you said? If you could explain a little bit, I'd appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it is working. Uh, and, and actually there are some uh, farmers doing that uh, here. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's a great, you know, we have this great resource, which is 300,000 acres of row crop and people less than nationwide, less than five people plant cover crop. I know. It's, really, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous, really isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that would make such a huge, huge difference in uh, in our whole uh, global warming problem if we did cover crops. I mean, it would be Exactly. Great. And the, the cover crop, they, you know, they, they put some carbon below ground and they help to uh, reduce the nitrate leach, which is a big problem here in Florida for, for our groundwater. Uh, and in our um, research here, we, we had some control, like the do-nothing approach, which is just, you know, the fallow land without doing anything, without planting cover crop, or just planting the cover crop, but without grazing, or grazing the, the cover crop. Grazing the cover crop was the best option in terms of reduction of nitrate leaching. Uh, and the, actually, the cows could pay for the cover crop, because when you talk about sustainability, we are also talking about the economics. Yeah. So it's really nice to talk about cover crop, but why, why do they... They don't plant it because it costs money. Oh, uh, I see. So that's the origin of it, is the original money. Faster, cheaper. Yeah, on the origin. But in the long run, not, because then they're, they would have to feed their cows. So if they don't have cows, I can see how that would be. That would be a great system for people that own the cows to have that as a rental. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and I think about, you know, it's not going to be the, uh, probably not be the same farmer. Uh, maybe there is the row crop farmer could partner uh, yes. with, uh, with a livestock farmer. Yes. And actually, uh, FDEX uh, is funding a, a, a project for us uh, to, to create like the match grazing, mm -hmm. which is kind of a, an app that will try to, to match uh, row crop producers with yeah. livestock producers and so that they can share the, the land and they can use and integrate those systems. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and hopefully the, the livestock will be able to pay for the cover crop 
naturally increase the crop productivity, which is a great, you know, thing. All right, Jose, that, that was a great tip. I want, what, what? One more thing. <laughs> I've got a question here. So my thing is, uh, not a question, it's a statement. So I know that there are hays that are uh, grown with a Roundup spray over them and then different pesticides, herbicides, and so on over them. So then if you use the cow manure of the hay that that is in it, you're... Uh, you're Crops will die, which I know this has actually happened to me. So, and I know somebody it happened to seriously, and they their uh, their land was dead for seven years. So then that would have to be in play with what the the animals that would get hooked up with the farmer, which I think is a wonderful idea. But they would have to know exactly what those animals were being fed, or they could set themselves up for complete failure. So right, yeah. So yeah, they, they, they reach an agreement on those things, and, and really, you know, the, the the cover crop system is really low input. That's not a whole lot of uh, chemicals being applied there. At least here in North Florida, no, but it's the hay that the system. animals would eat before they got right. there. My point is that yeah. it's what they eat before they get to your place. Uh, if you didn't know that they had been eating the poisoned, well, poisoned the 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 treated hay with particulars, uh, you would you would be in trouble. So that's right. That's right. All right, Jose, we have a little message from Mr. Bill Grace about our show. Right on. Well, there you are just sitting out there in Radio Land enjoying the Sustainable Living Show and wondering how can you show your support. Just go to our website, WMNF.org, and click on the tip jar at the top of the screen. Be sure to direct your donation to SUL for Sustainable Living. And just let me say, supporting Sustainable Living in WMNF Tampa will be the most rewarding thing that you can do with your clothes on. <laughs> so we have Mr. Bill Grace say, He's so funny. <laughs> say a little promotion for us every week because next month uh, WMNF has a big fundraiser. Yeah. And while all of us are volunteers, we do need funds to help keep the station Absolutely. running. So we also, anybody that listens really needs to... Uh, you know, give us a little bit of of uh, dinero uh, to be able to, yeah, to pay for what you're listening to. I know I didn't for a really long time, and finally I realized what I was doing. I was, you know, taking it. Also, we're having a uh, a um, celebration of uh, WMNF's forty uh, third birthday. birthday next week, um, and in fact, I'm putting together uh, a pots a pot with a bunch of wonderful plants in it for an uh, for the auction. Very good. So, Jose, in the introduction, we said that you are exploring cactus as a fodder. Yes, I'm excited. We are very excited. Yeah. I don't know why we're excited, but we like the the idea of cows eating cactus. And I love them, so there's that. (laughs) So, Jose, how how do you grow cactus? How are the cows eating it? Right. uh, Good question. Uh, Just to clarify, I'm doing that uh, in in my international uh, work. I'm not doing that here in Florida, but uh, I used to do that uh, in Brazil when I was there. Uh, Brazil has a million acres of planted cactus uh, to feed cows. Mm. Uh, and today we have a lot of uh, different projects in, in Africa that we are trying to uh, to build the resilience of those systems uh, using cactus. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, if the climate change, the, the world's getting hotter and drier, you know, severe droughts and more frequent uh, cactus can grow in places that uh, other plants cannot. Uh, and uh, it has a, it's highly digestible for the cows. It's also a good source of uh, water uh, and, and minerals and vitamins. Uh, it's not a complete feed. It, it's low in protein and fiber, but it, it could be definitely 
uh, fed to, to, to cows and actually people do it. Uh, actually, there, there'll be like the International Cactus Congress will be in a couple of weeks and I'll be attending that. Ah, where is that going to be? <laughs> it's going to be in Brazil this time. Oh, lucky. But it rotates every, every three years. It's in a different place, but by coincidence, this time it's there. Oh, that's nice for you. You get to visit. Yeah, that's great. Um, So earlier we were talking about silvopasture, and you mentioned that it's the integration of trees and cows and grazing. But does that have anything to do with other animals? Like having, I've seen systems where it's cows, and then after the cows, it's chickens. Oh, and then right. after the chickens, it's pigs. Right. And there's just this big rotation and the chickens go through the cow manure and they pick out the bugs. And then when they're doing that, they're spreading the manure mm-hmm. so it's not so concentrated. So, What do the pigs do? They Sounds ro- like they would root up the, uh, the roots. So that doesn't... Jose, what do the pigs do? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Simopasis does not... Uh, <laughs> necessarily involve the use of different animals, like you were saying, but uh, it's typically beneficial to to combine different species of animal. I had some experience back in Brazil with that. When you have a, a, a vegetation, uh, for example, cows and, and, and sheep or cows and goat, uh, mm-hmm. the, the goats, they, they, they prefer broad leaves and, and, and cows prefer grasses. So as you combine those, you kind of, you know, uh, make the most out of, out of that system. Would, um, they, would they be in the same time? Do they do they get along? I mean, I don't know. It, it could be at the same time, but uh, in some people, they, they alternate. Like one year they use goat, the other year they use even sheep that has a, actually a different uh, preference compared to goats uh, in, 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 or, or cows. So, But it could be at the same time as well. Another know. thing that those systems can do uh, that I mentioned is, is for the wildlife here in Florida. That's that's a huge, you know, the, the wildlife. So that could, uh, uh, you know, be a, a habitat for wildlife as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. I had a friend that was growing sheep. Uh, he grows for meat. He and uh, he grows uh, chickens. And that sounds horrible. He raises chickens, pigs, and he did raise uh, uh, sheep, uh, but they were. It was just too hot. For them here, they don't do very well here. Apparently, there are there are I think particular at least one or two breeds that, that are well from like the, the islands that yeah. can handle Florida. Yeah, it's actually increasing. There is a, a small ruminant project at the University of Florida now. Right. That, and, and you know there there are you know an association already and, and, and producers. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's increasing. There are some some types of you know the hairless uh, sheep that could could be hairless grown. sheep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Right. That's, That's very common in more tropical areas yeah. because they, they, they can't stand the heat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because they have hair rather than wool. Right. Right. Yeah. Like hairy sheep. Yeah. Oh, right. okay. So more we, like goat like. Yeah. Yeah. So right. we do have a lot of listeners, but we our uh, listeners are very quiet today. But it's Labor Day. It's Labor Day. But I want to ask. It's laborious to call. So now that we know that we should be doing more silvopastures, we should be incorporating other types of livestock. And we, so what can consumers do? So, you know, if you're, can you look for a label if you're going oh, you to mean the, for me? That's, that's a great, a great question. For uh, me, Kenny. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So like, okay. You know, most of the listeners aren't farmers. So how right. do they support people who are doing the right thing? Oh, very good. Right. Uh, we, we just submitted, submitted a, a big proposal uh, from UF uh, to, to try to develop climate smart uh, livestock products. Uh, here in Florida. So if you get that funding, uh, it, the idea is to uh, to develop uh, a climate smart label for livestock products 
uh, and then you're going to measure and monitor uh, the you know the climate and the carbon footprint of those systems. Mm. Uh, and and at the end of the story uh, in the whole chain, and the idea is to produce locally everything here in Florida. And at some point, uh, the consumers could look for those uh, climate smart products. They'll be certified. You're going to be measuring and you're using artificial intelligence, machine learning, different uh, components uh, to, to assess, you know, the, the carbon emissions and, and carbon footprint of those systems. Uh, and and they're going to have to be a reduced carbon footprint compared to the business as usual mm -hmm. um, product. That's a great So that, that will be a, a, a market that we're willing to develop here uh, in Florida. And what? how do you do that? You said you're, you've put that together. Do you have to get that as a law passed or how does that work? Uh, there's a special, you know, a group of people working on, on that. That's really not my my, my okay. expertise, right. but um, yeah, I think that we need to work with uh, with the agents, with FDEX, um, probably first, and then the USDA later. Uh, but yeah, there, there's a whole bunch of regulation. That's, what did you uh, call it, FDEX? It's the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Florida State Department of, of Agriculture, Farming Culture. Oh, Agriculture and Ag Consumer Services. And yeah. Consumer Services. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Does the USDA support or fund people who are raising cows in this natural open pasture, or are they more funding people who have feedlots and encouraging the growing of corn and soy? And uh, USDA is a, is a large agency, so they have different programs. And actually, you know, the NRCS is one of another agents, a federal agents that also uh, helps a lot to develop uh, sustainable systems and sustainable practices. They they actually have an equip program uh, that helps producer to to use those those practices. And yes, they they fund uh, all all kind of things, and including the ranches and natural areas. Uh, you know, to make sure that we you know. We um, reduce, for example, soil erosion, that we, you know, reduce contaminations and things like that. So, the, yeah, there are different programs uh, from, from USDA and also from the state of Florida. Yeah, two reasons to use the, uh, the cover crop is that soil erosion as well as the others that we were talking about. Um, That's right. You know, one of my concerns has always been whenever I did eat meat at all, uh, was the food that the cows were eating. And so if they were eating corn uh, or even the chickens or the pigs or any of that stuff, uh, if they were eating the corn or the soy or any of the hay, for me to know how that was grown uh, is was really important, as well as the um, uh, medical preventative medicines, antibiotics and so mm -hmm. on that a lot of the animals were getting, as I would like to know that as well. Uh, yeah. But I don't think that's going to be on the list. I mean, I, I like your list, what you just talked about, the, about they're being helpful to the carbon sequestering and so on. But I was wondering about, you know, it's hormone-free, um, so on, so on, uh, free. But there's no way of monitoring that, is there? Um, well, uh, I guess that you can potentially monitor that. But uh, what, just for... Um, Clarification that the levels of hormones that uh, cattle use are so uh, small that uh, it doesn't, it, it's much less than, you know, many other uh, types of foods. And uh, But uh, there is a niche market for grass-fed uh, beef. There are some um, producers doing that here, uh, and that is raised on, on grass the whole time. 
but it, you know, if you like that marbling, uh, you know, at, at the finishing phase, you, you, you need to feed some grain at some point if you, if you want that. When I was uh, watching the the farmer Joel Salatin, he was saying that his farm is not like your grandpa's farm, right? Because he has this integrated system. He has super high tech electric fencing where he can move the cows around in right. like a mob mentality. And he believes that because people are so separated from their food that they assume or they think that farmers are like the B and C and D students, like the people who couldn't oh, get... Oh, I see. They're lesser, edu- lesser yeah, than. Yeah, couldn't get education, where he's saying that there's so many new technologies. Mm. Well, like it's old old skills that we're bringing back. Yeah, because they worked. So, Jose, do yeah. you work with a lot of farmers then? Yes. Yeah, so extension I'll- work? Yeah, I'd like to say that uh, if you, if you ate today, uh, thank to a yes. farmer. Yes. So that that's really important. Uh, and yes, I have an extension appointment, and and I do work with uh, farmers. I love to work with them because it's a way to to learn. You know, I, I learn a lot with them. You know, I, I receive mm-hmm. feedback from the things that we are doing and try to correct if needed uh, and adjust. You know, the um, but uh, uh, mostly the whole thing that we do is is. Um, to keep them um, productive uh, in a sustainable way. That's that's what we are doing. Uh, and by the way, the, the large grant uh, for the Climate Smart Livestock Products, the bulk of the, the funding will go for farmers uh, to adopt climate smart practice in their operations. Uh, and so that's that's going to work as an incentive for them to, to adopt no, that. So that a, you're saying yeah. that they're getting paid to do that? I'm sorry, I don't understand. Uh, Why would they adopt well, it? They would, they, would, they would have to transition from a system that they are using to a climate smart system, and that includes uh, some practices that need investment. So they would receive some incentive that they are not enough to, to do what they are supposed to do, but it's just like a, a little push to help them in that direction. And at some point, they're going to be able to, uh, you know, produce locally climate smart livestock products to okay. reach Florida uh, market. That's the idea. Okay, great, great. So in your introduction, we were talking about how you've published over 660 articles, peer-reviewed articles, and you've chaired 36 graduate students. And I'm interested in that because I learned yesterday that the average farmer, and I don't know if that means like vegetable farmer or livestock farmer, is around 60 years old. So the people who are getting graduate degrees in forages uh, systems what is their, do you know what their motivation is? Like, why are they going into this field? That's a great question. And, uh, and you know, and, and that's, um, without those graduate students, we cannot do much here, to be honest, because we we, we, we do so many things in terms of research and, and their help is really needed. But, uh, yes, uh, you know, the, uh, I have a lot of international students, uh, graduate students, uh, not, not, not many from from U.S. Unfortunately, I would like to have more U.S. students. Looks like the uh, U.S. kids, as they finish the, the bachelor's degree, they, they they find job opportunities and they can you know receive re- relatively good salary and, and then they move on. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, there is a lot of international students interested in agriculture and they want to move uh, forward in the, their career to get masters and, and PhDs, uh, and and they want to, to work in the industry, you know, to work in. Um, in the companies, in the uh, academia, in, in, in different places. Mm-hmm. 
That's great. That's it. I know that's should, exciting. Should we take our uh, our person on the call? Yes, but uh, Annie, it's not what you think. <laughs> oh, I know who it is. It's our lovely Kitty Wallace. Isn't yes, it? but she wants to comment on the oh, current topic. Oh, you're going to comment? I Hi, thought Kitty. You were call in the. Hi. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> well, fine. Uh, well, I promised to call in on the first. Yes, uh, I know. I'm so Monday excited. Of the, of the month, and so I've got some events to tell. Yay. About coming up right now. Uh, the, the first thing that I found was um, the Urban Permaculture Design Course that's happening this Saturday at 9 o'clock in Brooksville. So that would be through um, our friend Corrine Brennan, and she is, you know, a great teacher. And if you have been interested in taking that Urban Permaculture Design Course, this is a great opportunity. You can find her on Facebook. There's also fall gardening workshops coming up on the following Saturday, on the 17th, fall gardening workshop at Plant City Commons Community Garden and at Healthy 22nd Street Community Garden. There's a fall gardening workshop. And there are uh, other opportunities to get involved with uh, sustainability through a different market. And there's a vegetable gardening master class at the 4-H Educational Center coming up in November. So we'll talk more about that later. That's All right. Well, that's what I found. Thank coming you. Up this weekend. Thank you. You You're know, I found welcome. a couple of other things too myself. Oh, uh, great. Yeah, uh, the uh, UFIFAS this Saturday. They have a rainwater harvesting workshop. They have a composting workshop and micro irrigation workshop uh, all on the same day. And so you could give them or go online and go to it. What is it? Um, uh, what is this thing that I go to? E- Eventbrite. Eventbrite. Thank you. Uh, and put in uh, UFIFAS and get all that information and you can register. It's yeah. amazing how much stuff is out there, isn't it, Kitty? Kitty's gone. Oh, Kitty's gone. <laughs> well, she's with us in spirit. That's right. So, uh, Jose, we got only three minutes left. We do have an email, and then, of course, we have a couple more questions. The email is from Tina. She's retired from uh, Hernando County. She is a longtime master gardener and extension service person and a conservation field worker. Very and good. she said that many of our invasive exotic species were initially brought here for fodder and fiber purposes, uh. like skunk fine and guinea grass, just two examples. And this is just one, uh, those are just some examples that went out of control. So, uh, Jose, is do you see a push for native grasses or perennial peanuts native? No, or no? it's not. Uh, or one of them is maybe? I don't think so. Jose, what do you think? Uh, yeah, we, we are very conscious. Uh, thanks for the question, by the way, uh, on, on the invasiveness issues of some species. And, and you're right, you know, in the past, you know, 50 years ago, uh, some, you know, species were brought to Florida and they became invasive. So we're, uh, today we actually have an uh, an assessment of invasement, uh, invasive species uh, before you know releasing any uh, new variety uh, from University of Florida, for example. Um, but uh, those ones, uh, we, so we try to, to work with the ones that are available here, uh, and they are not invasive at all. For example, perennial peanut is not invasive at all. It's uh, actually perennial peanut and bahia grass. They, they came from South America. They are not originally from here. Yeah, Brazil. But, I was just reading it from the mouth of the. I can't pronounce that river. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> And perennial peanut would be a good invasive. I mean, there are no good invasives. I'm just kidding. But uh, it's just pretty and, 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 and you know, fixed nitrogen and, and the, the wildlife loves it. Uh, you know, some people are raising uh, wildlife. They, they actually plant perennial peanut because the deer loves it. 
Uh, so it's it's a great forage. I and did anyhow, have my garden. I have a perennial peanut bed. It is rather aggressive, but I have it positioned in an area that's manageable. But I eat the flowers all the time. I put them. In, well, I just graze myself. Right, and and, and deer loves it. Yeah. So, Jose, we got two minutes, but I wanted to ask you about uh, conservation easement, but you yeah. only have two minutes. So, can you tell us what that is? And is it, do you think it's good or not so good for the environment? Uh, in a nutshell, uh, uh, pretty much, you know, there are some pristine areas uh, in the state of Florida where you still have, you know, natural habitats and, uh, you know, uh, wetlands and natural rangelands. Uh, so, um, what, what the government is doing, and especially in, in South Florida where the, the housing development is growing so fast. So what they're doing is trying to, uh, and, and those systems they are still uh, producing cattle, for example, some ranchers. So I think it's a great idea because the, the government kind of um, pays for, for, for the producers not to develop those areas for a hundred years. Uh, and keep the you know doing. I mean, there are, there are things in the contract. You know, that pretty much the producer needs to do keep doing what they are doing without developing the land, without you know changing the practice. So I think it's a great way to preserve. Imagine like hundred years from now, this pristine area in the middle of Florida. That's going to be like an island of mm. biodiversity, and yeah. it's a way to conserve those resources. So yes. I think it's a great idea. Last week we, or two weeks ago, we had somebody say that there's 1,000 people who move to Florida every day. Every day, yeah. So we definitely need to be... It was the water conservation set, ...setting some land aside. Absolutely. So, Jose, we thoroughly enjoyed yes, this. Yes, thank learned you very a lot. much. So much. And we hope more people follow your expertise. Yeah, and if... And your uh, recommendations. Uh, if they wanted to get more information, what is an area that they would uh, go to? Is there a website or something like that for this? Uh, sure. Well, I work at the University of Florida, North Florida Research and Educational Center here in Marion. I'm located in North Florida. Uh, so just send me an email. It's Dubé, like my, my last name, D as in Delta U-B-E-U-X at ufl.edu. And I'll be uh, happy to, to answer any questions. And, uh, and thank you again so much for having me on your show. pleasure. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Jose. We want to also thank Bill Grace for working the boards and doing all his magic. And we appreciate your weekly volunteering so much. And thanks, Greg, for answering the calls. If you enjoyed the show and our weekly content, please consider going to WMNF.org, donating through the tip jar and a sustainable living show, directly pushing your donation towards that. Uh, it keeps us on the air. Stick around next hour to hear WMNF's uh, uh, Monday Music with Lee. If you uh, want to hear more public interest programming, you can switch over to WMNF's HD3 channel, The Source, to listen to today's Tom Hartman Show live. Tune in next Monday morning at 11 for the Sustainable Living Show, where we'll be taking talking with USF professor George Philip Pitten, I can't pronounce it, on biofuels. Uh, follow our Facebook page, Sustainable Living, WMNF, and stay in the loop. I'm Annie Ellis. And I'm Kenny Coogan. Remember, if you want to save the world, look in the mirror. Yay. Bye. Bye.